I believe that every athlete in the world is creative. Just look around. And so if I really want to connect and to a happy place, I listen to some of the music that was on, we call it pirate radio station. Float like my jumper wet, sting like a bumblebee, I swing like a lumberjack, go back when I'm up at bat. Uh, when you are in the locker room in every team in Mexico, pick that song to motivate and increase the energy. What was your song of the day? No juice. Hey, this is Casey Dunow. And this is Peter Dunow. Welcome to the Athletes Playlist, where we ask your favorite athletes about their favorite music. Our guests today are Lawrence and Rob Can, two brothers who founded Street Soccer USA, a nationwide nonprofit that fights poverty and empowers underserved communities through soccer. They provide youth programs for kids who wouldn't get to play otherwise. They organize teams and tournaments for people who've struggled with homelessness. And they build street soccer fields in low-income areas. Their board features the likes of Kyle Martino, Tim Howard, Steve Nash, and many more sports legends. They're also both former D1 college soccer players. Lawrence and Rob, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So first off, we just want to check in and sort of acknowledge the situation that we're all in um, with coronavirus and all that's going on. Are you guys doing well and safe and good and everything? Thankfully, um, you're doing well. I'm here in, in New York City, so it's a tough environment oh, wow. uh, outside uh, where I am. And you know, a lot of our communities are disproportionately affected. You know, They say the, the virus doesn't discriminate, but the effect is that it hits the, the low-income neighborhoods a lot harder and a lot of underlying health conditions. So it's something, you know, we're definitely feeling and our staff, you know, are feeling in the neighborhoods, you know, big time. Yeah, with the broader community you work with, I could totally see that uh, being a, a tough, tough time for you all. But, um, well, our best wishes to all of them and I'm glad you're at least immediately safe. For sure. So we'll, we'll hop in. Uh, as a reminder to listeners, we like to highlight a few songs that have been meaningful to our guests in various times of their lives. We're going to kick off today's episode with Willie Nelson's cover of the classic track, Blue Skies. Blue skies, smiling at me, nothing but blue skies, do I see, blue singing a song, nothing but blue Sky. From now on, I never saw the sun shining so bright, never saw things going so right. Noticing the days hurrying by when you're in love, my how they fly by. Blue days, all of them gone, nothing but blue skies. From now on. That was Blue Skies, performed by Willie Nelson. Other songs you guys picked from your childhood were the country tune She Likes It Too by Alan Jackson and the 90s hit What If God Was One of Us by Joan Osborne. I want to ask about Blue Skies first, which is a really beautiful, I would say even sort of idyllic song. How does that track relate to your guys' childhood growing up in Virginia? I I think this is, uh, this is mine, uh, Rob. So, you know... Um, I would go to bed every night with the, and uh, listen to these Willie, this Willie Nelson album that had 
on Cloudy Day, Blue Skies, Georgia, all those great songs that were kind of like idealistic. So I think I got some of my like ch- hippie childhood idolism from uh, from Willie Nelson and um, you know, but literally, literally how I went to bed every night. I was listening to that record probably a gazillion times. And you guys are two of five brothers, so. I mean, I know us growing up as soccer players, there was sibling rivalries with soccer. Did that uh, persist between the two of you and your other brothers, or how'd that all shake out? Well, uh, in terms of as we progressed, kind of in the soccer, our other brothers excelled in some other sports, but we were you know, just enough in the age group apart that we weren't like directly competing with with one another. Um, but that didn't stop, you know, wrestling matches in the basement, and you know. Um, some good brotherly uh, fights and, and things of that nature where the competition came in in the basement. But, um, but yeah, we were, we were, you know, I think we were also encouraging of each other. I mean, Lawrence was, I guess you're five years older than me. So seeing him kind of progress in the sport and, and playing college, um, kind of looking up to him in that regard was something that, you know, inspired me for sure um, as, a, as a younger player. Um, you know, and I think that, uh, our other brothers, as I said, kind of excelled in some other sports. So, so athletics and kind of competition, whether it be uh, sports or, or non-sports, I think competition was something that was was alive and well in our family growing up. Definitely. Yeah. Any any serious injuries? I know Peter once dared me to jump over something. I couldn't jump over, land in the water, cut my foot, ten stitches. Uh, any fun stories like I'm that? I'm the older brother, so of yeah, course he's it was me, me. You know, <laughs> Rob, I can already tell your vibe. I, I'm connecting with more. No, I just kidding. <laughs> um, well, I was mentioning the wrestling. I don't remember it because I was the uh, bore the brunt of the of the pain. But we yeah. had some wrestling matches in the basement where we would watch, you know, Hulk Hogan and and uh, Rand, you know, Randy Macho Man, etc. And I got uh, I got pile drive, and it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't an act an acting job <laughs> the real deal yeah I, I yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember that i mean you you get merrill fell down trying to pile drive you and, and literally pile drive you <laughs> stood up and then did a, a, a nasty on like fell back again and we we got above you and we shook you and woke you up to rob don't tell mom you know, it was, it was, but yeah a lot i mean a lot of a lot a lot of injuries and near-death experiences growing up with them Five boys and a bunch of dogs and, and all that routine. For sure. Yeah, that's the way it's got to be. So, if the Willie Nelson was your track, um, Rob, did you did you have one in particular out of those three that was important to you? Yeah, I threw in the Alan Jackson one, and and I think it was kind of what Lawrence was alluding to a little bit. I mean, I wasn't a or, and as I got older, not a big kind of country fan, but that was just kind of one of those albums. I don't know if my uncle introduced it to me or, or a friend or something, but it was one that was kind of always in repeat. And I think there was something about, you know, uh, a, maybe we'll get into it later, but a spark of rebellion in us or, or just kind of um, taking a different path. Motorcycles. Uh, it just was kind of a cool song. I always liked it wasn't necessarily much deeper than that, but definitely kind of remember growing up um, with my uncle bailing hay and working on his farm and listening to Alan Jackson. So it's just something that that kind of popped into my, to my mind as, as I was thinking through, through childhood and, and a song I still, I still like. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And when you say um, rebellion, do you kind of mean taking the path less taken as far as, you know, not, 
not that many people start a nationwide soccer nonprofit. Is, is that kind of what you're getting at with that? Yeah, I think a little bit, you know, we, uh, there was a lot of, uh, family and support and love that we had growing up, but also, uh, uh, encouragement to get out there and experience new things and try, try different things. And our parents weren't, you know, forcing us to take one path or another. And I think that, uh, you know, I think it worked to our advantage, um, to, to get to where we are now. Sometimes encourage, sometimes discourage. And I think, you know, certainly Rob and myself, like soccer was not, a. It was kind of cutting against the grain, you know, anyway. It wasn't something that was in our family, but we were both really self-driven about and passionate about. And I think uh, probably the best athlete in the family is my youngest brother, who would have been an amazing soccer player. But uh, my mom, with five boys, you know, was did not want to drive him and get him to all the practices. Mm. Um, so she hated him. And she tried to talk me out of, out of playing. Really? Uh, but we were pretty self-driven to get out there and do yeah i think it's a lot you know and we, we had we had tons of advantages and means um still hard for us so you i mean you imagine what it's like for other folks to play in that system but um but yeah i mean i think it was if we weren't internally driven to do soccer like it would happen no, no one was forcing us actually i think they probably prefer we we didn't we didn't do the whole travel soccer thing but yeah, travel soccer, you know, we both went through it and it's it's a big commitment. Um, and that was one of the questions I actually had in regards to like child youth soccer programs. When you look back on your guys's youth soccer experience and then compare that to the experiences you offer through Street Soccer USA, I'd just be curious what some of the similarities and differences are and how that shaped how you approach Street Soccer USA. Well, I mean, listen, the... Um my experience playing uh, club soccer was like formative in my life, right? Like we had a very good club team, went to nationals, um, which was, you know, a huge, a huge deal for everybody. And we had kind of one person from every high school around the city. It was the one thing that we kind of did well, each of us. So like the practice space where we would train was very sacred. I mean, we got there and we weren't all the best friends, but we were all committed to that team. And uh, I mean, those were, those were like, the practices were as hard as the games and it, and we loved, you know, every minute of it. So, I mean, a lot of my life lessons have come from, from that team. Um, so, you know, certainly like you know, paying for it and sharing that experience, you just do by nature because it's part of, part of who you are. Um, I would say like, and, and Rob can you give his opinion, but you know, our youth soccer experience is you know, very different from the street soccer experience. Although I will say like, I was a good, you know, athlete and, you know, Rob's a natural athlete. Um, and, um, you know, the, what we didn't grow up in a soccer culture, but, uh, we would go to the university of Richmond and play these pickup games, uh, where it was all ages, all different, uh, backgrounds. I mean, the better players were not, were from other countries. Um, and I think I learned a lot in that environment. And then, you know, later on, where I on my personal soccer journey took a big jump was I worked, I worked a summer camp in which I spent, I was, I ran a soccer. It was just a, wasn't a fancy camp. It was a day camp that school ran. Uh, but I ran the soccer program. So it was me all day with a ball and a bunch of kids dribbling it. And I remember after that summer going back to the practice and I didn't really think anything of it, but the coach saying, Oh, wow, you spent some time with a ball and it was immediately noticeable. But I think like, 
that's the experience that we're trying to build where, where there's a soccer culture where kids are just playing for fun, just spending all day with the ball and, um, and enjoying it and not being coached. You know, it's so important that um, you develop an, in, I mean, that internal drive that like Rob and I had because we did it, we had it because we just loved the game and you got to, that's what street soccer is about is flipping that switch on and kids where they feel like self-empowered and self-motivated to do it. So, I mean, that, I think we felt that and we, we try to transmit that and, and the, the passion for the game, for like sure. we try to transmit and that's what the street soccer experience is about. But I would say, you know, the 11 aside travel weekends up and down the East coast in cars, or that's, that's not part of the street soccer USA experience for any of our kids, you know? For sure. Um, yeah, we talk about that on this show is that having spaces to play where you can take risks and have fun and try new things is like so important to youth development because within those big structured 11 on a side games, um, you know, probably not the best time to try a flying rainbow kick or something like that. Um, so, yeah, that, that was an interesting part for us for your mission. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that, Rob? Or? Yeah, I mean, I think Lawrence kind of touched on it, but um, just the broader idea of being a part of a team. I was really close with my club teammates, and uh, it was kind of funny because the age group above us was like super serious team. Um, they uh, uh, and we would scrimmage against them, but like our team's opposite of it. Like we were goof, you know, goofing off. We were still a pretty quality team, but we were really tight. And, um, so more than anything, it was just the experience of, of being, and that's where I got kind of self-confidence and felt like I was a part of something. And I think, um, uh, just, you know, it has nothing really to do with travel soccer, but just creating that experience mm-hmm. for anyone. And like, we think that everyone should be able to have the opportunity to be a part of a team. Um, and so it's really just transferring that experience of belonging, um, having people to be there for you. Um, we want to recreate that and make sure that everyone has the opportunity. And just one thing that is we noticed about the the fields is, you know, small. It's all, it's all small-sided. So can you guys just touch on, because another big theme on our show is, and, and you said it, your coach noticed you getting more touches. Can you touch on how important it is for youth players to play small-sided and, and maybe how Street Soccer USA can um, play into that model? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's a simple equation, right? Like, the, the fewer the 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 lower the ratio of ball to players, the more you see the ball, right? And that's you want you, you want to play the ball. You don't want to stand, you know, away from the ball. Um, so we encourage that. And I would say part of our philosophy, coaching philosophy, if there are if you got a four and four game and the skills aren't really there to manipulate the ball and pass it. And we break it down and play two games of two v two, and then sometimes the kids can figure it out. And if they can't, if that's still the degree of difficulty, they they lose the ball or half the time the ball's not on the field play. Well, we break it down and we do one v one. In a one v one scenario, you are engaged either offense or defense one hundred percent of the time. And when you break it down so that the the ratio matches the skill level, you really don't even have to coach. You just step back and watch the kids explore and discover uh, on their own. So. You know, that's kind of the approach we take. And so you build up to the larger game as opposed to just throwing kids in, into it. It's got to be fun. So you need to enter an environment where you set up for success. So if your skills aren't ready for 4v4, for 8v8, for 11v11, it's, that's not going to be a fun experience. You're going to feel pressure. You're not going to be able to trap the ball. You're going to 
do shortcuts, you know, bad. Let, let's get the technique. Let's get the fundamentals, the confidence right. And you got to do that small side. If you can't do it one v one, you're not gonna be able to do it eleven v eleven. That's a much more complex endeavor. So why would you start, you know, at a larger scale with little kids? Like you shut it, start smaller scale. So it's it's all practical stuff, but yeah, it's yeah, also it's, it's also just more fun. Super important. Yeah, totally. And also just from a practical level, like particularly in a lot of the urban areas where we uh, where we work that's the space that's available. So to oh, us, it's cool. kind of a no brainer. So we're, we don't have to transport people out to a soccer complex outside of town. We can play in the neighborhood and make it logistically simple. Um, and it makes sense from a development standpoint, as Lawrence just talked about. I got my own reasons why I do what I do. I like to ride motorcycles and she likes it too. I like to ride motorcycles and she likes it too. I always wore my hair just a little too long. And daddy didn't like it and he made no bones. And if I'd gotten it cut like he wanted me to, she wouldn't have had nothing left to run her fingers through. I got my own reasons why I do what I do. I like to wear my hair long, she likes it too. That was She Likes It Too by Alan Jackson. Transitioning to high school and college years, we've got some grittier checks, including a personal favorite of mine, Johnny Cash's cover of the Soundgarden song, Rusty Cage. I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my, gonna break my rusty cage and run. Too cold to start a fire, I'm burning diesel, burning dinosaur bones. I'll take the river down to Stillwater and ride a pack of dogs. I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my, gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my. That was Rusty Cage by Johnny Cash. Other songs you listed for high school and college years are Halloween by Dave Matthews and Players Club by Rappin' Forte. All these songs are a little less laid back than the childhood tracks, so were these pump-up soccer jams for either of you or just starting to get into edgier music as you got older? Uh, yeah, the sound... I mean, I was... Yeah, I was I was definitely into the sound board and, and then... Um, I remember going, going to school and playing at Davidson, which is in North Carolina, and, uh, and meeting even more friends that were, were deeper into country music than I was. And, and finding, the, um, finding the Johnny Cash America series was a revelation for sure. Um, uh, and, you know, definitely, um, you know, and then I think, you know, filing those, you kind of get into what Rob and I have kind of done in our life, but Johnny Cash is an artist is somebody I got, I was like, oddly enough, kind of introduced to through Soundgarden. Through that oh, cover. Cool. Totally. And then you follow like his whole career with like the, um, the Native American ballads and like Folsom prison right. and yeah, stuff and justice. like all the, pro- yeah. all, 
he's got a whole all the social justice and all the protest songs. I mean, he does a big whole religious uh, pilgrimage thing. But like those albums were just, like super influential and interesting. And you know, um, yes. Yeah, so that was like certainly like a formative you know album. And, and then just kind of as a storyteller. And uh, you know, we, we got to the work we did, you know, working with the homeless population. And you know, what was really initially interesting was just very you know, listening and hearing the stories of the people, the, their experiences living through those conditions and that kind of thing is kind of what pulled us in. And so I don't know, for me, that, that Johnny Cash album is like a super, you know, uh, some sort of transition point in my life. Influence. Yeah. 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 He's a songwriter. He really puts people first in his songs, which is a weird thing to say, but it's stories and it's, it's stories that you don't always hear. So I think that that's really beautiful. Um, what's going on with, with Playlist club by rapping forte. I love that track. No, it's me. I threw that one in yeah. there just, uh, to change it up a little based on some of the other songs we had in there. And, you know, I, you know, I, um, I was a big, uh, into some of the kind of nineties, uh, nineties rap. I was a big Tupac fan. Um, I thought of that one just in terms of like, what is a song? I mean, that, that, uh, it kind of takes me back to the high school years. I had a group of friends who's, um, in the, in the back of one of my friend's houses, it was his garage. And that was kind of our, like, group of friends hang out and we call it the players club that's where we yeah. just hung out probably not the only one as the song goes everyone kind of had their their spot where they hung out but that was where i developed a lot of lifelong friendships um but it just gives a little bit of a a, a change up from some of the other you know the country and the other folk kind of music that we had in there um to give a little bit of a different side of 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 uh, a window into me anyway yeah um, casey predicted that the players club might be related to a team soccer bonding so so i'm glad we asked um so that was your club team for you guys like playing in college did that close bond continue with your college teams and was that influential for you guys i I mean i'll stick with that um i I have a two three close friends from my college experience my college experience was okay you know um it wasn't as wasn't as uh tight-knit as my you know team um, in high school. Um, so, you know, it was a very much, uh, my experience anyway was, uh, you know, the coach was there to get wins. That was Mm. how he was, you know, defined in his career. And it was a very hard edged approach that was very different than what I was used to. Um, and a few, a few of us, you know, kind of stuck together through that. We had a ton of players who came for a year, uh, got disillusioned, left, mm-hmm. um, and we were always kind of, uh, you know, we were in Conference USA. Uh, East Carolina was more of a football, baseball school, so we were trying to keep up of, with the St. Louis's, the other, some of the other powerhouse kind of, um, you know, Division One programs. Uh, so it was it was trying, but you know, we had a lot of people come and go, um, but definitely a different experience and not not similar to to what I had had kind of to that point for sure how is it for you playing at uh davidson yeah i mean i um what i liked about davidson and being recruited there was that they had been to the final four and wow i, I was coming off yeah yeah i think in 92 they um were a final four team and uh with a guy named rob ukrop who um was a national player of the year you know, Herman Trophy winner uh, when they went to the Final Four and then played the Revolution for a while. And he's from um, 
our hometown of Richmond and, um, you know, was part of the reason, you know, saw it, watched, watched me play against his rival high school and part of the reason I went to Davidson. So, um, so I had, and then, you know, I was coming off my club team having uh, gone to nationals. And so I was, I was like totally convinced that I would go to Davidson and we would go to the final four and we'd be this amazing Cinderella experience. And, uh, you know, so it was the first experience that I had with losing, Mm. uh, ever, uh, like where our club team won like nine state cups in a wow. row and we've got the regional finals a lot, finally punched through, you know, the one year, um, you know, but we, we, you know, lost some penalties and we, you know, so we were always winning and almost always won. And then going to Davidson and you play in an amazing schedule in Davidson, just because where it is, you play Carolina every year, Duke every year, you know, we went UCLA came when they were number one in the country and played at, our place. So coach Slagle was the coach then who would coach the team, the final four had always had an amazing schedule. Uh, but we got clobbered on occasion. Uh And, um, so that was like learning how to lose and, uh, what that does to you when your identity is wrapped up as a soccer player. I mean, that was very, very hard, but I, I, you know, coming out on the other side of that, um, I learned some, I learned a lot. It sounds like both of you maybe, had to go through some rockier times in college, which is interesting. We had Patrick Ioni from the Sounders on last, and he talked. It was interesting. You said identity, I think, um, and how tough it is if you're having those rockier moments in soccer and that's tied up in your identity, how that can be like a weird soul-searching experience. So I guess relating to Street Soccer USA, how were you guys able to both in your own ways maybe – come out of that and then re-fall in love with soccer, right? Because if soccer for you was winning and then it's not winning anymore, you kind of have to re-find your love. Or for you, Rob, if it was the friendship and then that wasn't as much, how do you re-find your love in the game? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, you know, I don't want to make it out like I, I didn't have any close friends. I got you know, a number of close friends that we, we kind of bonded through the, through the experience mm-hmm. of, of four years. Um, but there were elements to which the way the team was uh, run, which made, I did for a period of time be like, you know, this is awful. You know, why am I doing this? But I'd love the game so much. And it meant so much to me that, uh, and I love stepping out on the field that it, it never crossed my mind to, to not play. Um, but I did get to, you know, my senior year to kind of to the end of the road. I remember vividly having the feeling, I think it was one of my last two or three games of being like, I played soccer my entire life. And I'm going to walk off the field and like, that's it, Yeah, you know, yeah. like, and, and thinking like, wow, like I didn't, you know, you're just kind of living moment to moment, um, as a kid, not like contemplating that you're just like, oh yeah, I'll play forever. I'll, you know, um, so I did have some, some, you know, soul searching, uh, you might call it of, of kind of, what am I going to do next? Just like anyone would have at the end of college. Um, you know, uh, and that's where you know, Lawrence, you know, obviously, it was older than me, graduated and invited me down to uh, Ministry Center in Charlotte, where we started Street Soccer USA. Um, and I was able to see people playing with some kids who were aging out of foster care, running away from home, who were, you know, without anything, but were finding meaning and playing the game and building friendships and loving that hour that twice a week that we created to play. And it just kind of all kind of came together. Like, of course, this is what the game is all about. 
And, uh, and that's when like, for whatever reason, that feeling, um, has, you know, sustained. Press plate on remote at the Players Club. Me and my homies, we tied it in the club. We chop a lot of game, that's how we do it at the Players Club. Jump the pool, keep it in the tub, don't keep much ass. Players Club. From day one, I had to get my money right. Me flying Frankie J, we took an airplane flight, huh? They wanted to hear rap, I said I bet. We dropped the beat, I grabbed a mic, and then they wrote a check. A few G's for the pocket, no hesitation. Took a flight back to the Golden State, and shops made orders from a whole new capital. The word was getting out, Ote's out, rappers don't get That was Players Club by Rappin' Forte, followed by some ads that were hopefully not too awkwardly placed. Next up, we've got a song that I'm very curious about, which is I Smoke, I Drink by Lil Boozy, who is now known as Boozy Badass and who, fun fact, also made No Juice, which is the song Marshawn Lynch shouts out at the end of our intro. Anyway, the song has a somewhat complicated history that I'll touch on in a second, but for now, let's listen to the track. song we heard is listed on spotify as part of body headbangers volume one and body headbangers is a rap group that originally consisted of roy jones jr mr magic and choppa my understanding is that boozy originally made i smoke i drink then sold it to body headbangers but he still appears on their version of the track alongside mr magic and young bleed the song was then remixed into a track that featured only roy jones jr mr magic and young bloods who are not the same as young bleed and it's only that remix of the song that actually charted. All of that is really neither here nor there, but just want to give credit where credit's due. And please, hip-hop heads, if I flub that, hit me up on Twitter because I'm genuinely curious about the origins of that song. All that aside, now we're <laughs> into the part of your journey where you're founding Street Soccer USA. Um, so I'm really interested in how that song fits into that part of your guys' life. I've heard none of those versions. Really? Okay, so is your version only so I'll let, listeners? I'll let Lawrence tell the story. Tell the story. <laughs> okay, all right. I mean, so um, uh, how do we put it? Well, you know, we started uh, street soccer uh, at a soup kitchen uh, called the Urban Ministry Center in, in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, we took the first group uh, that we took abroad to the Homeless World Cup, we went to Scotland. And it was um, an amazing journey. These guys, you know, Ray and Margaret and Abdul and all these folks who literally um, were sleeping in shelters or outdoors and would come to these practices. Uh, we lost our first 39 games that we ever played in local competitions. Um, but it was this kind of dream that, that we were going to, um, you know, we were, we were proud to uh, go out there and compete and do our best. And, and it was this amazing journey. So we, we put the team together. I mean, these guys, they endured a lot of insults joining a homeless soccer team. Okay. It's like, um, 
it was not an easy thing for them to go do. It was kind of like this impossible thing. It was like a challenge. Like, well, let's, let's try to do it. So um, we got to Scotland. And one of the things that happened on that journey was we had to apply for visas. So we applied for what they called sport person visas. And part of that visa application process was we, they had to, uh, if you had any criminal backgrounds or court records and stuff, you had to submit all that. So we had to go to the courthouse and get all these files for people that are picked up for all kinds of crimes. A lot of times mm-hmm. just being homeless, you know, right. and some people had other things on the record that weren't as nice, but, uh, but we sent all this stuff in. Um, and uh, here we were with special invitations from Scotland to play in this homeless world cup, which for your viewers is, is a now almost 70 nation tournament where the U S representative and it, it involves programs, grassroots programs that use the power of sports uh, to help people build community, build job skills, get their life back on track, et cetera. And there's similar programs all over the world. We come together for this homeless World Cup. So this was the first one we were going to. Everyone was very excited. We raised money. We worked hard. We did car washes. We bought the plane tickets. We applied for the visas. And we got these letters back uh, from the UK visas that said uh, the subject does not have sufficient assets to ensure his return to the home country. In other words, they were denying us visas because they said, well, these guys are too poor uh, that they won't come over here and freeload off our system. So they invited us and then they rejected us. And it was like very disheartening. And the only two people, only three people that got the um, visas were uh, me, Rob, and Jessica Woody, who was the other coach. Uh, so they, they gave visas to the coaches, but not to the team. Yeah. So uh, we could board the plane, even though we had rejection stamps in our visas. So we decided, we had like a team talk. We said, well, listen, we're going to go there. Um, and we got, we got a call from the organizers of the Homeless World Cup. You know, we told them what happened. Hey, we got rejected for our visas. They said, well, listen, as Americans, you probably get in anyway. And, uh, and that, a lot of our teams have a lot of uh, immigrants and, and people with other passports. But this year, everybody with that American passport. And uh, he's probably just get in the country, you know, dressed in street clothes and all this stuff. And here we were, we'd, we had these uniforms we were going to send off. And we could no way tell this group, go incognito, be ashamed, pretend you're not who you are and sneak <laughs> in the country. Yeah. It just wasn't like we, that was the plan. And then, right, you know, we sat there and we we're like, we can't do that. Right. So, so we got on the plane and we said, listen, if we get rejected, we're going to hold our heads high and we're going to walk through this thing. So, we walk through uniforms on, we get in line. Um, we go to the, uh, the first couple guys just breeze through yeah. and then they start asking questions. One guy flips through, he sees a rejection stamp. They called the other guys back and they detained us all and make a long story short, this guy, uh, they, they, they detained us for like a couple of hours and we don't know like what's happening. And this guy, uh, named Gavin White, remember it came, came and he said you're organizing the group i said yeah yes sir he's like listen i'm no way supposed to let you in the country but you've been really honest about all your background and everything you told us things that didn't even show up in the in the visa reports i'm gonna give you a hearing on this in 10 days and confiscate our passport but create a loophole let us go in so here we thought we were rejected and then all of a sudden we were on cloud nine because we wow. got in we participated in the tournament we lost all the games in the tournament um, but we, when we were marching as a team, we hear these guys, and most of them were in some sort of uh, drug recovery, et cetera. And Ray Isaac, who's Robin I's buddy and became the first street soccer staff member, was grabbing the American flag, and he was the favorite player of everybody. 
And every time in the games, he would lead a, a lap around the field, win or lose before and That's after the awesome. game, he'd do a lap, a lap of honor around the field with the flag. And he started singing this song. <laughs> I oh smoked. My gosh. I tried to quit and I came. <laughs> I'm a dog. I pose. Money. <laughs> So and he had everybody, all these everyone was singing along with him. He kind of led on singing the song. So um, you know, we we love Ray and remember that uh, like it was yesterday. That's a that's a wild story. I'm gonna I'm gonna change it on Wikipedia to say that the official version is by Ray Isaac now. I think that that's <laughs> there you go. that's only fair. There you go. Um it's also kind of beautiful because it sounds like if you guys would have gone in incognito, they might have they might have booted you because you went in heads held high. Yeah, that's a good they lesson. respected that, which I think is a pretty rad life lesson. Uh, it was. I mean, we tell that story a lot, and it was, it was. I mean, it was definitely a deep, a deep experience for all of us, and, uh, and a special one. Uh, so, one question I had is, um, you started from pretty humble beginnings with the one team, working through that ministry, and was there a moment or a couple moments which stand out where you? you know, thought, wow, like I could really scale this and make, make a nationwide nonprofit kind of what you have going on today possible. Uh, you know, from the beginning, I think oh, like the pair. Yeah. No, nah, I mean, not on, no, not on that. We were hyper-focused on that community and that neighborhood. Um, but you know, you saw, it just hit the nail on the head. Uh, you know, like or what people need. It seems so absurd. Right. This popular sport and the toughest social issue. <laughs> like, wow, you guys are like punishment. But, uh, you know, but it really was. It was, a, it was accountability to a group. It was mentorship. It was sweating together. It was, we're all, everyone on the same level. It was that sort of like fundamental validation of being a part of something. It was, you know, primary. And that was really the social service model that we created mm-hmm. is rather than build a relationships through like an inherently dependent relationship where you're behind a desk and uh, you need a resource on the other side of the desk. And if you tell me the right story, I give it to you. And now we're in this weird, you know, dependency thing. We build relationships through shared experience. And it could be anything we were doing art, but it ended up being soccer. And, um, and we have the shared experience and now we have common ground. Now we understand each other. And you know, Rob and I are very cognizant. He was telling stories about bailing hay and I'm, Quoting William Nelson, talking about my former uncle. I mean, we run a, a largely urban soccer organization. That's mm. not lost on us, mm-hmm. you know. But but this sport enables you know folks with our background and anyone with different backgrounds to to get together and, and and have a common bond. And there's things that we understand about family, you know, the same values that are on our teams that we share with one another. And so so when you start to sit back and think about it, and really when you saw what these folks had overcome after years on the street and, and the trajectory. I mean, it was powerful and uh, people took notice. And uh, so it had a life of its own. And, and we, that's why we called it that first year street soccer USA. Cause we said, Hey, you know, and I remember, uh, I can't remember who it was, but I heard somebody speaking at a time and they said, Hey, if you have a good, you're obligated to share it and spread mm. it. Don't sit on it. And, and uh, there was another, you know, when we, we use that thing of that if you have a lampstand, uh, you know, you don't put it in the cellar, you put it out where it can light up the whole room. So we felt like we were on to something that was powerful. And so we, we, we set out very early to spread it. Uh, we didn't have any money. And so we just, you know, used the phone and invited people to come and we shared our curriculum and model and we created a tournament and said, Hey, we'll go do what we were doing and come back in a year. And let's, and that's turned into an eight city network. And, you know, we made a lot of, growing pains along the way, but, um, you know, it's gotten much beyond, you know, 
Rob and Rob and me, you know, now, and um, we look forward to the day when it's run by folks who come through our program. Mm. That's oh, the yeah. vision. But cool. I think we're just starting in terms of the scale of this. Post COVID nineteen, you know, pay to play soccer is going to be hard, and I think local uh, competition, more informal, tech enabled on some level, but like very community focused design for the bottom of the pyramid is more and more relevant. Yeah, and uh, collective spirit that and the values that we have, civics values. What is it to be a teammate? What is it to be a neighbor? What is it to be a, a community member? I mean, that stuff's going to be super relevant. So, uh, you know, we have big ambitions for, for how this continues to scale. And we've been figuring it out for a while now. We've got the pieces and the network. Well, cool. On that note, um, probably a little pivot just because the other song you picked for this section couldn't be too much more different. It's a bit more on the wholesome side. Um, so uh, whoever picked it, can we get the story behind I'm Gonna Be by The Proclaimers? Well... This it, it's in the same vein as the first story because it was oh, a cool. part of the same trip of going to the homeless world cup in Scotland. And that was kind of the theme oh, song Scotland. of that event. And it was just one of those kind of, you know, um, hair raising on the, uh, on your arm type of moments that happened for us as a part of that entire journey where, you know, it seemed like every, you know, third match or something, they were playing that song and the crowds were packed at the, uh, at the event and people were, were singing along. Um, and it just kind of etched in our memory as, as the first, you know, event that we went to and something that, you know, definitely kind of, uh, you know, marks the beginning or the genesis, I think, of our organization. Um, I don't think we want to add to that, Lawrence, but for me, that's just, I, I hear that song and I'm taken back to to that event and those moments and those people that we were working with who, who many of them were, all of them were more or less still in touch with uh, today. Very cool. Uh are the Proclaimers Scottish or are they Yeah, the Irish? Proclaimers are Scottish. I thought they were Irish. Right? Uh-oh. you guys found you know you, you've got little boozy and you've got the proclaimers mixing at the same event have you found working with um so many different cultures through your program that you're just sort of being uh lit up by all these different uh songs and music and stuff from different places yeah. that you might not have known about yeah i thought we picked a canon uh, waving flag yeah but um you know because that, that's the one we play at all our big events you know, we do the Times square cup and the la cup at la live and all these big, big events. And we're always playing that song and, you know, it pulls everyone together, but, you know, we have all these Somali refugees in Minneapolis in our program uh, for whom Kanan is like a hero. And you think about life in the country now and uh, where do people come together of different backgrounds and political persuasions and all these things. I mean, you, I mean, the soccer field is, is where it's at and definitely street soccer USA. I mean, uh, you should see our New York program when the, the, all the, you know, we've got a street league, uh, in all the different neighborhoods. So in the Bronx, it's a lot of, um, 
kids from uh, West Africa, from Guinea, you know, Latinos and Chinese kids from Sunset Park on the other side of the city in uh, East Brooklyn, and then Caribbean heritage kids out in Flatbush and Haitians mm. uh, that are in our program. So, I mean, and it's amazing to see folks kind of get together and, and, and share. You know, we, we, we do these street festivals with, with food and uh, kids coming from all the different neighborhoods and playing from youth level up to adult. I mean, it's, it's super rich and it makes you, you know, thankful for the, yeah. the country that we live in, you know? Definitely. Um, and that's probably, you know, I actually got to play in your Seattle tournament a year ago and had that same experience. I was happened to be wearing a Tanzania Jersey because my dad brought it back from a trip and, you know, the next thing I know, someone came up to me and he wasn't from Tanzania, but he was a refugee from Africa. And we had a long talk about Tanzania and where he was from. And so the the melting pot aspect of street soccer um, is just it was definitely inspirational to me on that day. Born to a throne, stronger than Rome, a violent prone, poor people's zone, but it's my home. So that was uh, Canaan Wave and Flag, and we already touched on it a little bit. Um, that anthem seems like so perfect for, for you guys playing at your tournaments. Um, can you tell us a little more about how the tournaments work? I know there's the World Cup that you're a partner with, and then you host tournaments, and there's partner city chapters. So maybe if you could just, for listeners, explain how that all comes together. Yeah, so you know we have a you know uh, city uh, kind of base model where um, you know the premise is that um, you know it's a non-pay-to-play model. So we run these uh, free practices, after-school programs, and then targeted programs for homeless kids, homeless adults, etc. Uh, it's all part of, of street soccer, and then we run a, a street league in the different neighborhoods and then the culmination of street league is our annual cup, you know? And so the cup, all of our participants throughout the year play in the tournament, but it also has an open division. So anyone, uh, businesses, foundations, whomever can, uh, pay and play in the tournament. Uh, so we have a kind of competitive adult division. We have a corporate division and we have the youth division, uh, which is our program team. So it's a big festival where the city really comes together uh, around, you know, around the sport of soccer on these small 4v4 pop-up fields that we put in amazing you know, places that you wouldn't expect to see a soccer field, like right on Duffy Plaza in Times Square. So it's just, these, these are very high-energy events. Uh, we play um, the games in 20 minutes. Uh, they go throughout the day. We play several hundred games, 9.8 goals per match, uh, 32-team-style World Cup tournaments all in one day. Wow. Uh, uh, Yeah, it's a lot. And the the games are DJed. There's live music. And it's really just a wonderful celebration. And you see everyone come together. 
Um, and those, but the, the unique thing is that those are social enterprise model events. So we sell sponsorships and we make a profit off the events and all that money goes back uh, to pay the coaches to set up the program so that uh, the community and the kids who need it can play for free. Um, and so what we're in the process of doing now is stitching together all these tournaments in the different cities into a, into a national uh, competition. Um, wow. anyway, the other we cool want to play, that, so keep us posted. On it's a blast. Yeah, go ahead, Rob. Uh, just, yeah, just to mention, I think, you know, teams certainly kind of like sign up and register, which, which help, um, you know, as Lawrence mentioned, but what, uh, what has happened is uh, most um, of those companies are also sponsoring one of the neighborhood teams during the rest of the year. So whether you're in, you know, a city where we work or, or not, um, you can come and, you know, pay and play in the event and support the cause. But, uh, a lot of folks are sponsoring and supporting one of our neighborhood teams throughout the year. So then they get to interact with the team that they've been supporting. Oftentimes that team will go out and participate with the team in their, in their neighborhood that they've been supporting and have friendly matches. And then, you know, they play in the tournament. So it's really a year long kind of engagement with, um, you know, the different kind of worlds and people coming together uh, through the game. And then you've got a pretty star studded board and ambassadors and all that. So we were kind of fanboying a little bit. When yeah. We looked at your board. <laughs> how'd you get involved with that? We know, um, you know, I follow NBC sports or whatever. I know Kyle Martino's always talking about street soccer. So I thought that was a really cool, um, merge, but yeah. How'd you guys get involved with some of those folks? You know, um, we, uh, a long time ago, we uh, during the Steve Nash you know, showdown, uh, we were we kind of built a reputation because of producing events because we ran this Times Square tournament. Totally. So a, a, a friend of ours who started the event with uh, with Steve uh, Venancio Champa and invited us in to help run part of the production, and we ended up taking over the production of that event. So built a relationship with Steve, met Kyle initially, kept in touch, ended up you know getting invited to be part of the think tank that was his campaign and. You know, just listening to his leadership and talking about the issues that we care about, which is investing in the bottom yeah. of the pyramid and the grassroots culture. It was just it was one-to-one what we believed in. And um, so we sat down after the campaign and I got to go to lunch. I said, to Kyle, I want to go to lunch. He said, oh, I'll go to lunch with you too. And I was like, I want to recruit you to our board. He's like, I want to join your board. So it was oh, like cool. the easiest uh, conversation ever. We both independently went to the meeting with the same objective. And, you know, Kyle's been tremendous getting – uh, Tim and, and and Clint involved, and you know we have other amazing uh, folks uh, like Sheila Johnson, who's been involved for a long time, yeah. um, and so many other other uh, you know leaders and board members, and you know uh, you know Hope Solo is somebody who uh, doesn't always in the media gets a funny um, for sure you know look, but we've just seen her give of her time and herself generously to our players and. You know, uh, so there's just been a lot of people, um, Chris Wondolowski, Rob has a great relationship with, you know, these are all folks that they, they, they don't just, um, you know, put their name on, on the letterhead and, and send out a tweet. You know, I mean, Chris comes on his days off and practices wow. with our homeless team. I mean, they're all uh, genuinely involved and you know, means a lot. You mentioned um, Sheila Johnson. I just want to give you guys some space to talk about the Ladies First initiative that we're scoping out on your website and what it, what your plans are for all that. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just about we, what we know is that if you create space mm-hmm. um, for girls, the girls want to play ball, and, and you just got to give them the chance, and you got to invest in female coaches, uh, and it's super important to their development. So, you know, uh, we're committed to creating that space, and you know, Sheila's obviously been a leader in a number of ways in sports in general, and, and in women's sports, and Title Nine and running the mystics and all that. So um, we're fortunate to have uh, an advocate like her helping us. Absolutely. I, I actually, I have a salacious question I forgot about. Can Steve Nash ball? Oh, no. I, oh, yeah. I have to imagine he's pretty good. He is a, a baller. Um, I mean, he played in our LA tournament uh, and uh, lit, lit it up. And he plays in his own Steve Nash yeah. showdown. So he's, um, yeah, fun to watch him play on these small side of courts. The size, more or less, of a basketball court. Oh, and so yeah. he, the movement that he does intuitively, and the watching his head on a swivel, and how he, the vision is, you know, pretty awesome to see. Yeah, I was um, always a fan growing up, watching him play basketball. I'm terrible at basketball, but I was like, if I was good as a soccer player, I imagine it would look something like that. <laughs> the way we're he both sees short, the court. so yeah, you know, yeah, that, yeah. that played into it. <laughs> um, uh, I yeah, think, he was. Uh, oh, go ahead. We we did a. Uh, um, Back in New York, before we we went on one one of our took one of our teams abroad, we we did a scrimmage match with 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 Steve and some of his buddies and Financio. And I remember I was I was younger at that time, so I was like, um, you know, playing soccer with Steve Nash. Like I'm going to try to mega him on the sideline mm. and, and run around, and it'll be a good memory for myself. And like yeah. <laughs> I tried to put it through his legs, and the guy turned elbows up, like wouldn't let me by him. I was like, this guy is, knows what's up. He's not- yeah, he's a competitor. He's not going to let some idiot try to clown him out out on the field. So he's you know not only kind of smooth on the ball, but it, you know obviously he's not going to get embarrassed. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Worth a shot though. Yeah, worth a shot. Yeah, you had to do it. Take your shot. Um, I think one. You know, you guys do so much great work, and you know, uh, in the space of the podcast, we can't do deep dives on everything. But one thing I did want to talk about. Um, was the actual building of street soccer fields which is another cool part can you guys talk about that a little bit um yeah i mean i think um having a uh iconic space a space in the community as a point of pride um is um you know it's transformative and and um uh, like i said kind of like um you know iconic uh, symbols of uh, the commitment to the program and, and what's happening you know, now in Sacramento where we're working with Union Pacific Railway to fund a field in Oak Park. Um, so we'll build these fields and not only will it be a soccer field, uh, but we're putting in the shipping containers are converted to kind of classrooms and storage space right next to the field. And then we'll run leagues in the evening. So it's a venue for the community to come together and have a space to call its own, be proud of, for the for the club to be hosted at. Um, it's also a place where uh, we can reinforce our mission and uh, do uh, classrooms, school activities, whatever. And then in the evening, it's a little social enterprise, and we can create some small-level jobs, get people some training, get some sustainable money into the program. So um, having these kind of um, you know hubs in each city is part of our mission and model and, and it really it's starting to make a lot of sense uh, so we're hoping to do a lot more of them yeah hopefully one in seattle soon and maybe even spokane <laughs> yeah well the sanders the sanders are doing yeah, you know, the sanders have stuff, been building some really cool and we had a yeah. conversation with them 
about sharing some of our practices. So hopefully we work into a, oh, you know, a partnership. I was, yeah, yeah, I was really, actually wondering about that because they've been building some cool fields in, in cool areas and doing some team events. Yeah, so there's a lot of alignment between you know, some of our expertise and vision and what the RISE is doing. And so you know, we're really focused now on, on our capacity centrally to start to be able to expand and, and create you know a model where anyone can kind of franchise their own street soccer club. Right. So you know, kind of when we when we start to recover, and it's going to be a slow recovery from the, the COVID um, you know, when we come out of that, um, we'll have to be prepared to really start to grow rapidly. And people want to, they're interested, they see the podcast, they want to know how to become a member of USA or part of it, I should say. You can event at streetsoccerusa.org. You can email us, Robin. Robin and I are super accessible, as is all of our staff, Lawrence, Rob at streetsoccerusa.org. Please reach out. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's a that's a beautiful note to end on. Um, definitely to our listeners, reach out. Yeah, definitely. I participated in one event and super inspired to do more. So I'd encourage everyone, and uh, we'll include a link on the blog too to to get involved. And on that note, we'll cue out with the song. And as far as the connection with the work you all do, I really think uh, the song speaks for itself. We're gonna play out on "Love in a Hopeless Place" by Rihanna featuring Calvin Harris. So thank you, Rob, and thank you, Lawrence, for your time and for all the awesome work you're doing in the soccer community. Thanks, thank you. It was a good work. Thank you.